section of buzz track at mic level 5, preparatory to an interview with Mr Dick Johnson in Fort Worth on 12th of May, 79. That it could indeed uh, set the speed record, and uh, I used it at, for that attempt at the uh, Cleveland Air Races in the fall of, of uh, 1948. It was unsuccessful in that the uh, rules required uh, four runs, two in each direction, uh, consecutive. It turned out that there was an FJ-1 that... that um, came in from a cross-country race and tripped off the camera, so we had only three runs instead of four. So subsequently then we went out to, uh, after the air races were over, we went out to Edwards and set a world speed record of 670.981 miles per hour. That record stood for several years. Now then, following that uh, set of, uh, of high-speed runs in the Sabre, I became uh, very impressed with its flying qualities and what it could do and so subsequently then we brought uh, two of them to right field and uh, myself as pilot along with Paul Bickle as engineer we did some uh, research flying in uh, supersonic to uh, determine several things uh, stability and control idiosyncrasies as well as airspeed indicating system idiosyncrasies Paul Bickle was, and his people were measuring <clears throat> the speed of these dives that I was making with a radar system, and it turned out that that uh, while I was making these dives, uh, very near uh, the right field, right Patterson Field Complex that you've just been to, uh, Paul called me over the radio and said, "There's been a pretty serious explosion down here. We best knock it off for today and and see what happens." I, at the time, thought that he was talking about some kind of a to-do with his electronic equipment uh, radar gear. So I went back to right field and landed, and not much was discussed of the explosion. We went to fly again the next day, and he said, there's been an explosion again. And I still didn't tie it to uh, my flight, the supersonic flight that I had just done. He was wearing mill dives. Right. Mm. And... Uh, so I went back and landed again, and so then Paul and I had a discussion. He said, in each case, these these uh, great large booms, incidentally, there was panic in the city of Dayton. There was offers of ambulances to be brought from, from Columbus, Ohio, and all sorts of stuff like this. When uh, we decided, well, it pretty well is related to these high-speed dives we're doing. So we happened to have an article from a, from a newspaper that indicated some mysterious explosions uh, in the uh, Indiana side, just uh, oh, about 40 miles southwest of Dayton, and that's a place that I had flown practicing for these runs. So those were the very supersonic, first supersonic booms that any, anyone made any uh, note of. Then the next day, uh, after the first two that I just mentioned, uh, we did three consecutive uh, dives and had three consecutive booms that just really upset the countryside and so we quit we stopped and and uh, and the military people then were were maybe a bit like they are now sort of solid-headed and they refused to admit that we had caused this and so that and then we weren't allowed to continue our research and we had to stop this for quite a long time what indicated mag numbers were you having on those flights uh, Oh, uh, 1.04, 1.07, uh, and up to 1.1, and that, that was the uh, maximum. 
And how did you find the aircraft behave when it went transonic? Were there, were there vast pitch changes that you well, had to accomplish? The, the pitch change uh, was, was rather minimal. The, the biggest change was lateral. And uh, actually there was, uh, there was a slight tendency at one point in the transition for the, for, to be a roll reversal. And uh, then when the roll reversal ended, then, then uh, things were correct again, but, but rather uh, very sluggish and, uh, from a roll point of view. When you say roll reversal, what do you mean? Just dropping well, the wing? Or? No, a roll reversal from the point of view of, of uh, for instance, if there was a bit of a wing drop and you wanted to correct it, when you put the stick to the right, it uh, rolled more to the left. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so you had to give opposite yes, to the conventional for correction? Yes, sh- for a short period in there. Yeah. And, and <clears throat> the basic reason for that was that this fairly highly swept wing would bend, and uh, then the aileron was more or less as- acting like sort of an old-style servo tab. And uh, this was again found in, in uh, high-speed flying at uh, low altitude, and Sabres and Hunters too. And so that was an early idiosyncrasy of stability and control that we discovered in that. That really was the first supersonic flying I did, and we were then squelched from doing those high-speed dives because of the nuisance it caused. But on occasion, <clears throat> when I was flying cross-country for one reason or another, sometimes just to display the F-86, sometimes, uh, I think I think mainly it was for display, and sometimes to ferry them to um, places for tests and so forth, I would mischievously do these dives, and like I did one in, in New York City, and there were headlines all over the papers about this tremendous booms that occurred, and of course I knew they didn't know I did it, and I wasn't living up to it. But I quit doing it for fun, for sport, one time, because I did it in St. Augustine, Florida, and windows were broken. I have some very, very old, old plate glass windows, and, and I, I made an effort to determine that no one was injured, so when I discovered that no one was injured, then I didn't admit to it, and never again did it as a prank, but it was done all over the countryside and in England and France just for the hell of it, many times after that. Because it, it um, came to prominence in England during the night of the 52 Farnborough display when yes. Neville Duke and right. poor John Derry yeah. uh, both did it. But yeah. your, at the time you're talking about now was when, about 1948? It was the winter of 48-49, and, <clears throat> and I believe if we look in my record we'll find the flights that I'm talking about were in February of 49. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then, uh, really, the next the next airplane that I flew that would fly supersonic was the XF-91. There aren't very many people who know that airplane. It had inverse taper. I saw it at Dayton. Yes, it also had a... It had a you could adjust the incidence of the wing in flight. I flew that airplane supersonic, barely supersonic, when uh, when we did the first Air Force evaluation of it. At that time, it had an afterburner, and it was the first afterburner flown on anyone's airplane any time. Um, was this level flight you got it in? Or? No, I was just going to mention that mm. it was intended to have, you probably noticed, and did have subsequently had some rocket engines as well as the uh, jet engine with the reheat. At the time that I flew it, it did not have the rocket engines would not fly supersonic in level flight, but took quite a dive to get it supersonic. Subsequently, a considerable number of years after this period of time, which I believe was 
1948. Uh, then when the rockets were fitted, it did fly supersonic and level flight. This inverse taper idea, was this a, a way to minimize chip losses at low speed? Uh, yes, it was, it was intended to uh, to give a swept-wing uh, airplane all the good flying qualities of the straight-wing airplane, but taking advantage of the swept-wing. And it did indeed, but it was a, it was a structural mess to have... It got thicker um, yeah, as, as it, it got went to outward. Tip, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it, uh, structurally, it was, it, was, uh, it was bad. Aerodynamically, it was nice. Mm. And, uh, it was a quite good, quite nice flying airplane. Mm. As a matter of fact, one wouldn't think of uh, such a thing really, but I did a complete engine out bed stick emergency landing in that airplane and uh, it landed on the runway out at Edwards. Of course, I had an all a great large lake to land on, but it had been raining. So I elected to land it on the runway and my commanding officer, General Boyd, gave me the devil for choosing the runway when I could have landed on that great big lake. And of course his view was, well, it might have made some tracks out there, but uh, then you for sure wouldn't have missed, whereas landing our high-priced uh, research airplane on this runway, you might have missed it. Mm -hmm. and that was that was the first supersonic flying that I did, and of course uh, Jaeger had previously flown supersonic in the X-1 and was continuing to do so during this period. The next airplane that I flew, that flew supersonic, but it had not flown supersonic when I flew it, and uh, not until considerably later, was the was the XF-92. You probably are aware that that the airplane was built by a conveyor. Had a very interesting landing gear. It had I forgot which, but it had either two left landing gears from a from a P-39, or it had two right ones. I didn't know that. Yeah. If you look at the photograph of it, you'll see that it has a right and left landing gear, uh, and and it had all kinds of other um, pieces and parts that, that uh, allowed it to be constructed rather cheaply as compared to everything brand new, because it was a research airplane. One of the things that had that it had that made it extremely difficult to uh, do very well with it was that the wing spar, main wing spar, went right straight through the air inlet for the engine, and it just had holes in the spar rather than a nice neat inlet and so the, the poor engine was rather choked and uh, that's one of the reasons it was down on power then wasn't yeah, it yeah mm -hmm. it had such poor performance as it was originally uh, uh, flown that we had to see so we'd take off in ground effect and we we couldn't climb out of ground effect with the gear down we'd have to retract the landing gear still in ground effect in order to get out of ground effect. So it was terribly difficult to even get the airplane high enough to consider um, a bit of a dive to get it into supersonic speed. As a result, it was not until a considerable number of, considerable time later when an afterburner was fitted. You probably noticed in the pictures that you've seen of it that the aft end of it was changed considerably. The spar was hogged out a bit more to get more air to the engine and, and although it was not a good performer, say it was it was a pretty good research vehicle for the Delta wing and we found that uh, Yeager was among the first in that to uh, matter of fact he was assigned as the Air Force pilot to do the, the research work on it and he was really the first one to come flat out and say hey there's there's really development potential in this wing 
because it, it can maneuver the likes of which no one can believe. And in that article, he mentions that, in fact, he, it didn't stall. Right. It just lost lift. Yeah. Um, presumably, this was a gradual process instead yeah. of a cut-off process. Yes. And as a matter of fact, uh, because of that characteristic in the 102 and the 106, we redefined uh, for the 102 and 106 the stall because uh, the previous classic definition of the stall didn't apply to the delta wing. What is your classic definition? Well, the classic definition is is when you when you lose control, like you lose elevator control or you use rudder control or aileron control. In other words, you can't control the airplane anymore. Well, uh, in the 102 and the 106 you could go to such extreme angles of attack that you wouldn't believe it and, and still there was no, no lift break uh, and you could you had perfect pitch control you had perfect lateral control you had perfect directional control so we defined even if you were dropping like a stone yeah so we defined the stall as the point where you could no longer maintain altitude no matter what power you, you applied mm, mm. because there, there, were, there were no um, there were none of the usual idiosyncrasies of coming to a stall break and then mm. uh, the airplane falling out of the sky there are two, if I can just go back to the XF-92 for a second, there are two interesting points in that article uh, that occurred to me. One is that would, if, if you could have anticipated area rule as you later applied it to the F-102 mm -hmm. and applied it to the XF-92A, would you have got round its sluggish performance? Might it have been supersonic and level flight? Rather doubt it because it was awfully underpowered. It was mainly a loss of power rather yes. than an inefficient yeah. Yeah. airframe. No, if if it had had, for instance, if it had had as much power as a, as say an F eighty six had, mm. it would have gone supersonic and level flight. Yeah. yeah. The other point that mentioned, you know, and vis a vis the stall, um, it was found that, uh, or thought that, if you put the uh, center of gravity aft of this MAC yeah. line yeah. beyond thirty yeah. percent or something like that. Uh, it was in a very dangerous position. Uh, it's not mentioned there, but what we call now the super stall, is that what they were talk really talking about then? The locked-in stall? Uh, no, I don't, had one? don't think that's what they were talking about. I believe what they were talking about was uh, was a classic concern about uh, a static, unstable airplane, in which, mm. which uh, except under certain circumstances, uh, impossible to fly. So that's really what they were concerned about. <clears throat> now then, uh, the, the uh, far-aft CG that we've found since that, that you can fly an airplane with and quite well is under the supersonic condition because of the, of the great large travel of CP. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that it was not that, that wasn't a concern. And in, uh, in, for instance, moving the CG aft as far as could be done with the, with the 92 would really not have helped any. Mm, I would, mm. It would have helped, but it would have been almost an immeasurable amount because it was still going to be subsonic. Mm, mm. So the trim drag uh, uh, related to uh, to sort of a uh, aft limit CG for a subsonic airplane is is, is uh, rather a minor point mm, in, in adding mm. to its cruise performance, whereas it's a major point in a high speed, uh, high supersonic airplane. Yeah. The other point that's mentioned there about the these um, severe pitch ups. You mm -hmm. used to get at, at certain uh, relatively high subsonic mark numbers. Was this due to tip stalling, uh, airflow breaking away from the tips? Uh, I, I would think so. Uh, and and uh, I just I just don't see any other uh, mm. no any other reason for it. Because you actually bent bent some fences you put on, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fine. Um, 
after the XF-91, did you go on to the Bell X-1 then? I couldn't say for sure if it was before or after, but it was, uh, I rather believe it was after mm. uh, that I flew the X-1 the first time. And uh, my experience on X on X-1 can be, uh, that is uh, sort of a personal experience, can be summed up in, in sort of showing what sort of an attitude, and I think not only I as a test pilot, but lots of other test pilots had under some circumstances, um, you know, just uh, throttle to the wall and the devil be damned sort of thing. <coughs> but in the X-1, <coughs> you may be aware that, that it wasn't a single-engine airplane, it was a four-engine airplane. Most people thought it was a single-engine airplane. And uh, I've forgotten the numbers exactly, but but uh, just say there were one of the gauges on the instrument panel uh, would show uh, an indication of temperature when you selected an engine to be lit. If the temperature went over a certain value, you were supposed to cease and desist. And um, in other words, that one isn't doing all right this time, so don't use it. In any event, as part of the briefing um, and, and uh, schooling on the airplane, I understood this, and so in this on this flight, and I believe this would be typical of any relatively young test pilot for a first flight in this airplane. Rocket power was spectacularly pleasant. Once you were uh, well airborne, you know, it was it was like a healthy afterburner at 35, 40,000 feet, which was at that time non-existent and, and rare. See, the rocket actually uh, had slightly more power there than it had at sea level, and so it, it was just magnificent. So each one on the little control wheel, you probably saw the, this little lever there, you could push that would select number one, another notch would select number two, and you're to monitor these temperatures each time. Well, I had selected number three, and the temperature went overboard slightly, and, uh, and number one and number two were, were doing all right, and they felt so good to me, there's no way I could not select number four. I was, I was supposed to quit, but I selected number four, and it was all right, and as luck would have it, number three came within limits, and off we went. But... Uh, Anyway, that, that to me was was one of the cases where it just couldn't stop. How many flights did you make altogether? Um, don't remember. It was very few. Was this a sort of service endorsement flight? I mean, you flew as an Air Force test pilot. You know, yes, I flew as an Air Force test pilot. Uh, no, there weren't any uh, sort of service endorsements, if I understand what you mean, required. It was the case of... Uh, it was... I remember what it was for, and we did this on all subsequent airplanes. It was a case of we failed in the service. It was rather unneat to have only one pilot uh, having flown an airplane and have all of the industry and everybody else. Mm -hmm. and it was it was always quite nice to have two or three others of roughly the same uh, background and so forth that to either cooperate and say, hey, no, you're wrong. That, that Crossfield flew it as well, didn't he? Yes, mm -hmm. yeah. Much later than that, yeah. as I remember. And uh, on the flights that you made, what sort of um, speeds did you hit? 125, I believe. 125, 1.4, something like that. Mm -hmm. And you flew this subsequent to the Sabre? Yes, yeah. And how did you find it compared in its transonic mode with the Sabre? Well, it, it w of course, it was going through in level flight and in a climb and so much quickly, that much more quickly. There was a little bit of a twitch as we went supersonic, but that was essentially all. So, so it... In, and slight way, wing drop, was it? Or? Yeah, very yeah. slight, mm. almost imperceptible. Yeah. And uh, not only that, it had 
delightful flying qualities. And uh, whereas in the transonic range, uh, Saber was like the hunter, as a bit of a dog until you got it back into supersonic again. And uh, but X1 was never in that uh, regime long enough to even notice it. Was it a full aeroplane? Could you roll it? Oh yes, oh you bet. Mm -hmm. yeah. What sort of rate of roll did it have? Do you remember? No, I don't remember, but when you see Jaeger, he'll, he'll yeah. remember because he yeah. flew it a lot. And, uh, mm. It was a pretty high rate. Uh, of course, it would, it would vary uh, with, with uh, flight condition, but uh, it, was, it had extremely nice flying qualities, really. And you never had any exciting moments like Jaeger had with his uh, spectacular no. fall off? No. No. That was with a later model, though, wasn't it? I mean, you're talking about the original X1 yes, here, the yes. Glenys. Yeah. You flew. Yeah. 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 And that was, uh, and then the next airplane that I flew, that was, uh, it was our first level flight military airplane, uh, was the F100. And I flew that as a military pilot. As a matter of fact, I was the first military pilot to fly the, the uh, F100. It would just barely go uh, supersonic and level flight. That is the prototype. On days of uh, atmospheric temperature of uh, oh, 5, 10, 15 degrees warmer than standard, it would not go supersonic. Uh, of course, the engine that was that was in the airplane, uh, later production airplanes, uh, were slightly better than the prototype engine. So virtually all of the production airplanes went supersonic and level flight without any problem. Then the next airplane uh, that I flew that would fly supersonic in level flight was the 102. The original 102 would not fly supersonic in level flight. Yes, could, could you enlarge on this? Because it's quite a historic yes. time, wasn't it? Yes, it was. The, f the first 102 was one of many airplanes, both in this country and in your country, that were... Um, unfortunate recipients of engines that they were not designed for. In other words, the airplane came along and the engine did not. Uh, the engine that the uh, 102 was supposed to have, I believe, was we call the J67, if I remember right. In any event, it was uh, built by the Wright Company, and to the best of my knowledge, never ran above an idle. And was supposed to have had something in order of two and a half to three times the thrust <coughs> of the engine that we did use. And when you say an idle, what percentage? Oh, I sp uh, percentage RPM, I suppose, mm. would be like in uh, you know, 15% or something like that. Oh, as low as that? Yeah. But you're talking about ground, ground idle then? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, would, it, would be a, it would be something that, if it were an airplane, would perhaps barely make a taxi. Mm. And as far as I know, it, it would... I do know it was never ever installed in an airplane and it uh, turned out to be a complete failure. So the engine that was fitted was the same engine that was in the F-100. And uh, incidentally, uh, compressor stalls in the F-100 and in the F-102 at this time that when we didn't really know anything about compressor stalls were real adventures. This is during a maneuver, you mean? Uh, yes, uh, or a maneuver of the throttle, even. Really? Uh, or, yeah. or adjacent to a thunderstorm, perhaps, or, uh, or um, wrong time of the month or something. Um, anyway, it was one of these compressor stalls that caused Bob Hoover to have a broken back once. 
uh, come back to that in a minute. Anyway, we we began flying this 102, which would not go supersonic in level flight. I had done some research about this airplane before I resigned from the Air Force and went to work for uh, for General Dynamics. I knew before I left uh, the Air Force that the airplane, as it was configured, was a dead loss, total dead loss. I had had uh, fantastically good engineering help from one Mr. Edgar Schmood. Have you heard of him? No. He was, uh, at the time, he was the uh, he was the vice president for engineering at North American Aviation, and I believe he was number two to a Mr. Rice. He was prominent in the design of uh, P-51s, B-25s, Sabres, and so forth. And I sought his advice as to, uh, see, our country had now launched on a program to buy a great number of these F-102s and put them into the uh, interceptor fleet. And I could see from my Air Force position that it was a dead loss. And from a political point of view and a purchasing point of view, in my military uh, uh, position, there was nothing I could do about it. When you, when you say from your Air Force position it was a dead loss, I mean, you'd flown it. Yes. It, it, no, it, no, I hadn't, 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 hadn't flown it yet. It had never been flown. But I could tell from its weight, from its configuration, from its uh, configuration of the airfoil, from uh, the stability and control idiosyncrasies, principally uh, directional stability, no way it could be a success. You could just tell that from its paper Absolutely. specifications. And so I got this information uh, essentially to Mr. Edgar Smood to evaluate for me on a personal basis. Uh, I said, I cannot pay you. I have no way to pay you, but I want you to advise me whether or not there is development potential here, because I knew the Delta Wing was, was no doubt a good way to go, but it was not all right what was going on here. So Smoot, and I don't really know how much time he spent on it, but he did advise me that, yes, the airplane can be made proper, and told me all the things that, that uh, needed to be done, which were incidentally what I had already surmised. Pretty obvious uh, to anyone, really. So I went to work for General Dynamics. Incidentally, they don't know what I've just told you. And uh, as I first flew it, and I did make the first flights in it as it was configured in its awful configuration, mm. it was close to the worst airplane I've ever flown. Uh, it would go about, as I recall it, went over 9 tenths Mach number, but not very much, and would not go supersonic. Um, you probably are aware of, uh, then began a rather drastic program of reconfiguration. And the first one that we reconfigured was um, a made-over one of these originals. And um, we did not redo the vertical tail. We still had the small vertical tail, but we, we did the, redid the fuselage and we redid the wings and we redid the air inlets for the engine and we reshaped the boat tail, the back end a bit. 
and it flew very well in supersonic flight, a bit faster than the F-100 production airplane. This is the 102A now? Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, it really wasn't the 102A, but it was what one would have to consider the prototype of the 102A. It was a, it was a rebuilt YF-102 is what it was. But was this the first practical application of area rule that you know yes, of? Yes, it was. Mm. Yes, it was. And yeah. Whitcomb had only worked this idea out on paper. He hadn't even flown any, any sort of designs himself. Not unless they had had some in the wind tunnel that I'm not aware mm. of. Mm. I'm sure they did, really. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, then um, it, it, was a, it was a performance success. But it was not yet uh, a stability success because it did not have adequate directional stability. And uh, but we did we did uh, put in an electronic device to give it adequate directional stability. Well, a damping system of some sort. Uh, actually, it was it really wasn't a damping system. It was a synthetic system to uh, make it act as if it did have a bigger vertical stabilizer, and it had a damping system on top of that uh, yaw damper, as it were. So that made it a beautiful flying airplane, just absolutely superb flying airplane. Good gun platform. Oh, you bet! Mm. Just outstanding. It was. It was. It was. Uh, it was just a dream of an airplane. But it was. Uh, it did not satisfy me at that time from the electronic point of view, as you know. In in uh, 53, 54, electronics were were not quite of age yet. The solid state is part of them, and and the and the uh, miniaturization and so forth. And so. The uh, electronics that we had, we call it a beta feedback system or a side-slip feedback system, which is what uh, fooled the airplane into thinking it had more vertical tail. Uh, worked great, but there, there just wasn't the knowledge and the wherewithal in the space and so forth to make it uh, you a proper... You had a sort of pitot tube to pick up side movements, did it? Uh, uh, and then correct it? It had, had a vein, actually. A vein of some sort, yeah. yeah. So that here it was, uh, a system with, with no redundancy, requiring maintenance of some time, obviously, some time or other. My view was that that physically the vertical tail should be increased in size so that the maintenance would require to maybe brushing it once or twice a year to dust, dust it. There it would always be, and there's no electronics involved. And so you probably noticed that all of the subsequent and F-102s had larger tails, vertical tails, enlarged by almost one-third. Mm -hmm. They became, uh, and I would, I would challenge you to ask anyone that's ever flown an F-102 any period of time at all, most delightful first-class flying machines anyone ever flew. You what about its rate of climb? Oh, it wasn't the world's greatest performer. Uh, mm. Like I said, it would do, it would do uh, about 1.2 in level flight, uh, sort of at its best. Rate of climb of sort of gone. It was it was pretty high, and it would it had a very light wing loading for that for uh, airplanes of that category, and would fly higher than in level flight than almost anything. What was it loaded at, at uh, combat weight? I think well under fifty, but I don't mm -hmm. remember exactly. Uh, Run about the same as the F-15. Then. Yes, uh, yeah. I kind of think even even a little bit less. Yeah. And yeah. if you look in in your Jane's books that yeah. you have, it'll, it'll mm -hmm. tell you the exact mm -hmm. figures, and I don't remember them now. The 106 had almost the same platform, platform, uh, and uh, but it was loaded a little bit heavier, and although it had much more power, it wouldn't fly as high as a, as a 102, and that was strictly a case of wing loading. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the, the 102 was such a great airplane from a stability and control point of view, you could put it in a spin, 
spin it as long as you chose and recover in less than a half turn, just hands off. It's just beautiful, beautiful. Just, just giving it a bit of opposite rudder. Uh, didn't need to do that. If, if, yeah. you were, if you went into the spin trimmed to neutral, yeah. then all you had to do was just let go and it would recover practically instantly. Mm. Now, the, the uh, biggest reason for that was kind of uh, one of the dead losses as far as this drag was concerned. You probably noticed the difference between the, the spectacular difference, not counting the vertical tail, between the appearance of the 102 and the 106 was that the 102 had these great large inlets all the way up to beside the cockpit. Mm -hmm. And that made, in our language, sort of a dirty nose end to the airplane. In other words, it was not a nice, smooth configuration. It had these inlets and then boundary layer place and then a fuselage and canopy and, and other side of the fuselage, a boundary layer place and another inlet, <coughs> which made, <coughs> during the course of a spin, an aerodynamically uh, dirty or, or buffeting, uh, non-lifting device. In other words, the nose end of the airplane uh, was enough of a mess aerodynamically, so it did not propel the airplane round and around in a spin. Mm. And uh, so therefore, uh, that was the prime reason it was very easy to recover with. In the 106, you probably notice the inlets ended almost at the wing roots, where the wing root joined the fuselage. That was about where the inlets were, and the nose of the 106 from there on it was just, just beautiful, just mm. slightly triangular shape, but nice rounded corners. Well, that made a lifting body when you, when it began to yaw off and so it would spin like mad, and it was difficult to recover. Mm. But it was a outside of that characteristic, the 106. You probably recall it held a world speed record for a while. Mm. Forgotten the exact number, but something in the neighborhood of 2.5. Mm. May have been a little less, a little more. I don't really remember. I remember uh, the training for it, and it was Colonel Joe Rogers, a military pilot, that flew the airplane for that. The 106 airplane, I th it was, uh, I believe, the first. I may be wrong, but I think it was the first military airplane that would fly uh, Mach 2 plus and level flight. No, I think the 104 was. Was it? Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure. I'd have looked at the I'm not sure the timing either, but there was one. Why were the they such big airplanes? Do they have a, a, a long loiter capability? Yes. Uh, for example, the 102 would fly nonstop from the west coast to the east coast of the United States, 2,000 plus miles. It had uh, tremendous loiter capability. It also had uh, tremendous load carrying capability. Mm. And uh, they were designed then to be flown as standing patrols. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. The other thing I was fascinated looking at the 102, and it was, there was a production one up at the Air Force Museum the other day. I spent about a quarter of an hour crawling underneath it. Mm -hmm. It's a very very complicated wing on the underside, isn't it? Oh yes. Yeah. You know, it's got this this sort of camber over yeah. on the edge. Yeah. And That's all sorts of <laughs> yeah. undulations and yeah. so on. Well, if you look at the... Um, <clears throat> see, that was one of the basic... That was uh, sort of the basic change that was made in the wing uh, from the prototype to the, to the successful one. Uh, the successful one had that... And this was a NASA uh, development. was a conical camber. Now, if, if you could, if you could take a section of that leading edge of the wing and had enough more pieces, you could make a complete, neat cone out of it. Hmm. So it was, that's why it was called a conical camber. Oh, is that it? 
And this had the advantage, what, at, at low speed, at, 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 at flying at good at high angles of attack? Actually, yes, uh, that was one of the reasons. Uh, but peculiar enough, it was a, it was a, it was a supersonic advantage. Mm-hmm. Kept the, kept the CP in the right place so that the drive yeah. was not all that much out of gear. Mm. And, and mm. then it had the byproduct of being extremely good at low speed. Mm. I've seen um, people who were getting their first flights in, in uh, 102s come into land and misjudge the, uh, their distance and be totally out of, out of sort of uh, coordination with their airplane. Airplane virtually standing on its tail but uh, but under perfect control, other than the fellow couldn't see the runway anymore, and he'd just give the power to it and go like that and fly away. Whereas any other airplane, any other wing would have just bashed for sure, snapped off somewhere or other. I was looking at some fascinating footage in, in Washington uh, the other day of um, F-14 high angle of attack tests. Yeah, fantastic, aren't they? You know, standing up well, almost on its tail. I yeah. would say it's got an angle of attack getting on for 80 degrees. Yes. Yeah. And the efflux and the exhaust yeah. is coming yeah. up like that. Yes. And then as soon as he, t- he winds it off, it doesn't go down like that. It pivots on its nose yeah. and climbs up. Now, what uh, the, the F-14 and the 15, you know, with the way they've got these angled intake things, yeah. they're designed to perform well at high angles of attack. Yeah. What is the virtue of high angle of attack performance? Well, high angle of attack performance in and of itself has no virtue but the fact that that you can go to a high angle attack without getting out of control and without having what what uh, modern aviators call a departure in other words in other words depart from controlled flight mm. that's that's really is the advantage maybe does this help you t- do tight turns in combat situations well sure uh, from the standpoint of of uh, for instance if uh, like with most straight wing airplanes which probably stalled and were out of control at something like, oh, 15, 17, 19 degrees angle of attack. It's relatively nothing compared to what mm. you saw. Mm. Whereas if you could put it in and just really go around like that without <laughs> through, yeah. uh, uncontrolled through the air, that is mm. an advantage, mm. and that's, mm. that's what it is. Because mm. I wondered also with the F-14, with its variable geometry, uh-huh. Uh, you can understand carrying on coming onto a carrier you might want to use high angle of attack to slow down and get your wheels just where you wanted them but then if you can spread your wings forward you're back to a straight wing configuration yes. anyway yeah. yeah so presumably that was purely for a, for a combat situation they had yes that. of course uh, one of the reasons uh, that uh, high angle of attack is is, uh, is possible to the extent that it is with that airplane it maintains its directional stability mm. And, yeah. uh, and of course, if it didn't, you know, high angle attack, forget it. If if you've lost your your directional control, mm. which is usually the uh, case, but but uh, both the 15, the 16, and the 17, uh, I mean the 15, mm. do not. Mm. Two of them have those twin tail configurations, mm. and the other mm. one has this, these vortices that slip mm. back there and form the same function. And of course, when you're when you're operating at a hundred thousand feet, that virtue again is even is even higher because I mean the higher you go, yes. you can fall off the mark tightrope if you like. Except, right? Except airplanes we're talking about aren't don't operate there. No, but the F-15 does, doesn't it? I'm Not as a matter of course, no. No. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's got this shattering rate of climb, which I, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. 
Anything more about the 102s or 106s you'd like I to I don't hear? think so. I think, okay. I think one of the, the points that will come out of the story is yeah. the magic application of area rule, because then it, it crops up everywhere. I mean, it's on the B-58 and uh, every aircraft. One of the things I think fair to mention about both the 102 and the 106 was that flight control-wise, uh, we made them such that they were in delight to fly. And that, from then on forward, it just took the onus away from... There was power control, I suppose, right? Yes. yes with, with manual reversion, if necessary? No, no. Straight power control? No. The, the uh, last airplane that I know of that had that uh, was intended to be a, an appreciable supersonic airplane and had manual reversion was uh, Douglas's X-5. Mm-hmm. Uh, X-4, too. But they were... Uh, turned out to be a dead loss from the reversion point of view. Mm-hmm. Well, what we did was uh, we made virtually friction-free controls and so that you could have very flat static stability con- curves and yet not have, uh, have, have it masked by a band of friction. So the airplanes were indeed lovely to fly. And we, we also insisted on, on having uh, proper lateral forces and high rates of roll and strong directional stability and made both the 102 and the 106 forerunner of very popular and easy to fly supersonic airplanes. Did they need wing fences? I can't remember. I noticed. Well, yes. Uh, when you say need, they had them, and they had them because uh, they were advantages. Now, you probably noticed on the uh, 106, later versions of the 106 didn't have any wing fences. And the reason they didn't have was, wasn't because they didn't need it, Actually, I made an incorrect statement. They had them, but they were the wing fences were made of air on the on the uh, on the later version. They had slots on the leading edge. Yes, and, yeah. it, and it made a made a uh, plowed a, a, a vortice through there that worked as a fence. It had slightly less drag than the than the fence did. It was just as good at low speed and high speed as mm-hmm. as the actual fence. Now the fence, if you can get an idea of what sort of uh, what sort of uh, hardships it had to put up with? I've forgotten the highest uh, Q or the highest airspeed indicator that we would go to with that airplane. But whatever it turns out to be, uh, like in 1.2 at sea level, that's pretty high, and that would smash these fences. And uh, and so we the transverse flow along the wing, would you? Mean? Yeah, mm-hmm. and so. Um, uh, NASA had done some work with these notches, and so we we researched them ourselves and found that that worked, and so we threw away the fences. Well, so later hunters had them as well, didn't they? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, then uh, another airplane that you talked about that I've flown some, but I did not fly the first flights on was a B-58, which was a four-engine uh, bomber mm-hmm. airplane that we had that was... Um, a Mach 2 plus airplane and you probably recall it carried a great large weapons pod underneath it. Now, it, w- it was not a pleasant airplane to fly. It was, uh, although it was a uh, delight as far as performance was concerned, its flight control system was configured to be a delight for the autopilot. The pilot be damned. And, uh, <laughs> So it, it was it was very unpleasant to fly, although it had magnificent performance. 
It was designed for low-level flying, was it? Principally? No, yeah. high altitude. It wasn't. It was, it was really designed for for high altitude, mm-hmm. and it was really was a very good airplane, but it was politically unpopular. How come? Too expensive? Mm, I would say it was. Uh, it was a prejudice that generally may held, but for specifically for what reason I don't know. I think my opinion was that he did not like Convair. Uh, he did like Boeing. Uh, why he liked Boeing and why he didn't like Convair, I, I personally don't know. There's this famous phrase of his, you know, if I can't get in the cockpit, I don't like the plane or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I believe, and of course there was another thing that uh, you'll get into when you're out at North American, that the the B-58 Air Force people were afraid that if it turned out to be as much of a success as it could be, they wouldn't be allowed to have the B-70. That was another reason why it was uh, it was squelched. Did it have strategic range? Uh, strategic performance, yeah. Well, it had to be in-flight refueled. Yeah. yeah. And in consideration of the wherewithal we had at the time, yes, it did have strategic mm. range. But in spite of the political prejudice, it still had a very short operational lifetime, didn't it? Because, well, because of, of it. Because that of was yeah. the sole reason. Uh, I mean, it, it wasn't for uh, its shortcomings yeah. as, a, as an airplane. No. Did they think it wouldn't get through the uh, defense systems? Oh, I would... Uh, I just can't really intelligently answer that question. Uh, my opinion is that it was strictly concerned about uh, B-70 and, and uh, we were not the, not the, um, the uh, friendliest boys on the block, as it were. Yeah. To the they still built quite a number, didn't they? Yes, a hundred or so, a little over a hundred. Was it? No, I thought yeah. it was more than that, yeah. No, no, not very. If it was over a hundred, it was barely. I'm about to discuss the B-58. Yeah. And uh, just commenting that it was, uh, it performed as it was intended to perform. It was, it could carry the load it was intended to carry, and it could carry at Mach 2 for a considerable range. It was, a, as you know, it was a four-engine, four-afterburner airplane. It was, from a pilot point of view, it was not a delight to fly by any means. It was built to be flown by an autopilot, which it, which it was done very satisfactorily. Uh, the pilot's task, obviously, was, was to uh, monitor it as it went, and you could fly it uh, pilot-wise uh, throughout its entire range, but it, but it was not a real... Um, friendly, loving airplane from the standpoint of, a, of a, how a pilot thought about it. it was, was it, o- it oversensitive on its controls? Or no, what? I would say it was closer to being undersensitive. And uh, and one had the feeling that, that uh, in fact, it was a little difficult to, to fly coordinated. In other words, to coordinate rudder and aileron together. Uh, it, it was a fairly large airplane for the, for the speed range that was in compared to what we had flown, and it, it was it was a little difficult. Uh, you're probably aware of that, uh, to give you an idea, uh, it was, uh, they some of the Air Force types did rolls in them, uh, low altitude air shows and so forth, and so mm. it, it was a maneuverable enough airplane, but just didn't fly nice like a good fighter. Mm. Flew like a big old bomb. 
maybe with that big pot underneath, it, it had a sort of pendulum effect. It well, you, with or without it, uh, it was it was sort of the same, uh, mm. plus or minus the, the climb performance. So yeah. no, it wasn't wasn't any uh, that really wasn't the problem. It was built to be flown by an autopilot, mm. and and the uh, human pilot was had sort of second choice on how the controls worked. And it was fu fully area ruled. Yes, it was. Um, what sort of wing? Thickness ratio did it have about six percent, like the other, like the other. Yeah, one? I kind of think less. Less. Yeah, mm. I think less. I think probably about like on the one hundred twos and one hundred sixes, if I recall, we're in a neighborhood of uh, three or four percent. Really? Yeah, I that's think getting so. almost down to X one thickness then, aren't yeah. you? Yeah. yeah. Mm. And if you look in some of your uh, jeans and so forth, you'll see exactly what they were. But I'm I'm pretty sure they're in the mm. neighborhood of three to four percent. And of course, the first airplanes that we flew supersonic, I say that. Not counting the X one, were eight and ten percent, you know, and, uh, mm. and they were clubs. Yeah. yeah. Mm. The one, the one, the B fifty eight had, a, as we discussed, a very short life, and uh, and I think probably it was uh, it was uh, mainly uh, political. One of the things that we try to do with uh, with uh, B-58 that was of interest that really never did get very far was we proposed a prototype supersonic transport. Probably have heard of it. No, I haven't. Yeah, we did, and it uh, was not accepted. And of course, as you know, this country opted for a much higher speed supersonic transport and then, and then uh, scrubbed the whole thing. Mm. Was there any carryover in technology? Because a lot of the materials used in the B-58 was still in the, the transonic era, if you like. It was yeah. mainly a, an aluminum airplane. Yeah. It had this honeycomb construction that was carried over to the B-70, didn't it? Yes, it did. As a matter of fact, uh, our company here, I'm not sure where they built all of it, but they built a principal portion of the main spars on the B-70. Did they? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what sort of range? Did, I mean, did, did you did you need afterburner to go supersonic or in the B fifty eight? B fifty eight. That was almost. That's on the border of a, of a still existing controversy. It would come so close to going supersonic without afterburner that I rather believe on some days on certain conditions it probably did. But if it did, it was so slight that for all practical purposes, no. But, uh, you just turn them on to go supersonic yeah. and then turn them off again. Yeah. Mm. And of course, you could use them two at a time, or one at a time, or four at a time, or we choose sure. and, the, and the afterburner was also, you could also modulate it to some extent. See, it had the same engines as were in 104s, mm. and the same engines that were in 880 and 990 transports, and the same engines that are still going in F4s. Very good engines. They weren't fans, though. No, they yeah. were not. They were mm. General Electric uh, engines. Mm. What was what was your your range on it? At say an operational speed, just your cruising speed. I just don't really remember. Again, that'll be in Jane's. That'll be in Jane's yeah. again. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'll look it up. Uh, yeah, for the first time, also, you used these ejection capsule systems, didn't you? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, I sat in one in the B-70 the yeah. other day. It's like sitting in a, in a cupboard. Yes. Um, and of course, one of the things that we had to do, and uh, our proof of the pudding, as it were, is close that thing up and fly it from inside there. And if you, if you, uh, you say you sat in one, do you yeah. sit in it closed? No. Well, sitting in it closed, it, it was sort of like having to uh, view the world from your spectacles out here, you know. 
if you know what I mean. Good slots cut in it. Yeah. 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 And so, so if your if your uh, glasses are this far away, there's not too much you see, and and you could not get up to them like that. You see, yeah. so so your vision was restricted quite a bit. Of course, you so can op open it back up again. It's an autopilot's airplane, so that's the yeah. time you told the autopilot. Of course, was, that really is sort of beside the point because you didn't fly the airplane like that anyway, except, uh, as I recall, uh, you might have said it like that while the first two guys bailed out. That's mm. probably the reason. Yes. I, I, don't, I really don't remember why we had that. Presumably, you had some successful ejections using it, using that yeah. system. Mm -hmm. And there were no problems. Uh, in the development of it, there were there were uh, there were problems. I don't really remember not having. Uh, see, it was the development of, was done by a different company, mm. and uh, and uh, I don't remember. There were lots of development problems, as a matter of fact. But once it was uh, satisfactory and put in the airplane, then I don't remember any problems with it. Mm. Some of the ejections that were done with it, uh, the passenger was a bear. A bear? Yeah. And he, he, he uh, survived it okay? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. On one occasion, I think, with a great deal of anger. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, he was over his tranquilizer by the time he got to the ground, or <laughs> mostly over it. Yeah, yeah. Imagine they were uh, a fairly small black bears, I assume. Mm. What about the controls? Did you have a yoke or a stick? I had a stick. Mm -hmm. And again, the same system as the 102 and 106, fully powered and... Uh, yes, except, uh, like I say, it was designed for the autopilot to fly and the, and the pilot got second choice, so the mm. flight controls didn't have a nice feel and, and weren't, weren't, didn't give you the feeling of a high-quality, mm. good, nice airplane to fly. And, and was she as forgiving on, on landing as the 102? Could you bring her in with a lot of margin? Yeah, you could. Uh, you could, all right, except you have to understand that that bomber airplanes are not built to the same structural uh, integrity uh, constraints as fighter airplanes are. Bomber airplanes, both both British and, and ours, and I think everyone else's, are rather fragile airplanes, really, because they must carry large loads long distances. So you couldn't you couldn't uh, expect, for instance, a bomber airplane to put up with with, uh, for instance, certain uh, uh, gross landing uh, conditions that you could do with a, with a fighter airplane and, and mm. sort of think nothing of it. But as far as its uh, ability to uh, recover from out-of-order attitudes and that sort of thing, yeah, it was, it was fine. Mm. You mentioned earlier on that you'd flown the Avro 707 when you were over in England. Yes. Um, did, you, did you fly the Vulcan as well? No, I did not. It was not, uh, it was not yet when I was there. Oh, I see. Yeah. Now, I was, I was wondering uh, if you found any sort of differing uh, feel in flying, say, the 707 against the uh, XF-92 or the 102 well, in uh, Delta philosophy, if you like. Yeah. Of course, of course, the 707, you know, was, if I remember right, was something in the neighborhood of 40, 45 degrees, and the, mm. and the, uh, and the uh, 106s, 102s, and 92 were 60 degrees, and uh, that makes a spectacular difference. And uh, the, although the 707 was a, was a pleasant airplane to fly, and a very light wing-loaded airplane, uh, which is another uh, quality that makes 
airplanes feel nice and, and uh, makes them uh, pleasant to handle usually. It was, uh, it was as we flew it, it was a subsonic, uh, kind of a long time ago, uh, but very pleasant to fly airplane. I don't remember it having any uh, idiosyncrasies that were that were uh, unfriendly at all. Although there was a there was a pilot, I believe it was shortly after I flew it. I think he was a company pilot. I believe he was redheaded. Was killed in it shortly after. The first one, um, the very first one they built, an RAF pilot, I think, called Else, died in it. What was his name? Else. That was the very first one. Yeah. Well, he was. It was on a flight from Farnborough to, uh, no, from Boston down to Farnborough, mm. where he didn't arrive. Mm. And uh, I remember I was there at the time as an exchange officer. Mm. This one. Which one did you fly, the B or the C? The one with the, the root intake, the wing leading edge intakes, or the one on the back? I can't tell you. I could look in here and find yeah. a record of it, and if the dates of that's yeah. pure curiosity. Yeah. Um, one thing I, I'd like to just get a little more specifically from you is is the difference in flying characteristics vis-à-vis -vis angle of sweep. You know, your 60 yeah. degrees and the yeah. 707 is 45. How yeah. do they differ? Well, it's a little difficult to uh, be straightforward and answer that. Uh, one of the ways I would tend to describe it as a, a sweep back from uh, 45 on forward was really not too different than a straight wing. But from 45 on back or, or near 60 on back, then it got one of these no-stall characteristics and, and, and you know, like uh, 80 degrees angle of attack and falling out of the sky, but still in longitudinal, lateral, and directional control. There was, was the difference that was mm. most pronounced to me. Mm. It's the, the 45 and the 35s, uh, although that seemed to make a tremendous uh, pleasant difference uh, relative to drag, I, uh, their, their stalling characteristics and lateral characteristics uh, were not too different from, from straight-wing airplanes. Mm -hmm. Now when you begin to get into the large airplanes, then then there was a, a difference that uh, you're probably aware of, like in the 707s and that category of airplanes, you noticed that people that had transitioned from the straight-wing propeller-driven airplanes to these airplanes had difficulty because the lateral directional stability uh, characteristics were, were quite different. For instance, in a straight-wing uh, big old four-engine airplane, coming down a final approach in gusty conditions, you would sit there cranking away like this, keeping things right. In a 707, or in a highly swept, fairly flexible, best not do that, or you wouldn't get to the ground right side up. You want to you keep the nose going straight, and you want to do it with your, with your mm. rudder pedals. Mm. Or you want to have an electronic coordination system that does it for you. The first 707s were bastards to fly, and that's why that's why many of the captains uh, didn't make the grade from the, from the straight-wing airplanes to the uh, swept-wing airplanes because they could not quite catch up with the necessity for for uh, for countering for the for mm. the do the role of the highly swept airplane. Because they had tremendous as asymmetric problems during training flights. Didn't yes, they, uh, yeah. they couldn't yeah. hold two engines out on one side. No, which is why they then put power-assisted. Uh, Power assistance into the rudder, didn't right. you? Right. You, you presumably read Handling the Big Jets, D.P. Davis, have you? No, I haven't. Incidentally, the first, 
first big jet I ever flew was a Comet. Uh -huh. mm. Incidentally, of interest, I was flying a Comet, I believe John Derry was still there, and Cunningham, you remember him? Yeah. And I was flying the airplane from the, from the captain's side. I don't remember who was on the other side. And there was a demonstration flight, by the way, to several airline uh, yeah. officials. Mm. And <clears throat> And we were at, oh, 35, 40,000 feet, something like that. Mm. And uh, either John Derry or Cunningham said, hey, look at the meteor over there. And they said to me, uh, let's go attack them. And here we had a back end full of people standing up there drinking martinis and so forth and, <laughs> and talking. We did. We went over there and we could, just to give you an idea of... Uh, of how things had progressed. The meteor was, you know, middle of World War II design, uh, and here was a many years later design. And the principal thing now was extremely much lighter wing loading on the, on the comet as compared to the meteor. Well, we, we, with this great big transport, with a relatively small angle of bank on the tail of the meteor, and of course he saw us there and tried to outmaneuver us, and he'd stall and flip all over the place. And we weren't even wiggling enough to disturb their martinis. They didn't even know that we had attacked their best fighter. That's something. I'm seeing John Cunningham next month, yeah, actually. You might remind me I'll, of I'll that. play him this little bit of tape, actually. Yeah. It'll be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. <laughs>